Well, good morning. It's so good to be standing up here able to preach today. Um, it had been a long couple of weeks for me, as you know. I've been in, in, now the, ho- or in the hospital, and, um, and so I, I think I'm doing well. I run out of energy occasionally, and sometimes I don't remember what I'm talking about. So if in the middle of the sermon I don't know what I'm saying, and you don't know what I'm saying, someone just tell me I'm not making any sense, and I'll do my best to fix it. So, well, uh, today, this, this message as we continue our series, No Regrets, uh, out, of, out of the life of King Saul, uh, I, it made me think this week about my experience learning to drive when, when I was 14 years old. You know, I, I remember sitting in the car, uh, going out to the fairgrounds, because it was like the middle of winter, and my dad figured that we could drive there without killing anyone. And I remember putting this thing in drive, and and driving around the fairgrounds, and I just, at one point I remember looking over at my dad, and he was a nervous wreck. I mean, he was just a mess. You know, he'd be sitting there, and, and just with his hands clenched on the dashboard, and, and he just hated being out of control. And if I'd do something, if I'd stop quickly, he'd slam his hand on the dashboard and get mad at me, and, and he just couldn't stand being out of control. And, and I used to think, man, my dad's so silly, until... I now am the one in the passenger seat teaching my kids to drive. I just had this experience with Kaylin uh, last, there she is. She's driving the van around the school parking lot. And, uh, you know, it, it's a really fascinating thing. 25 years later, now I'm the one not in control. And I don't like it at all. You know, I try not to slam my hand on the dashboard, but, but I'm on num- kid number two. I went through this with Nicholas, and now I'm, Kaylin's getting ready to, to learn how to drive. And, and I just don't like not being in control. I just don't like it. Out of control. It's just like, ah, oh, this feeling. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about being out of control or being in control. Because the truth is that Jesus is our king. And when we say Jesus is our king, by definition, we're giving up control of our lives. A king doesn't count votes. A king doesn't get opinion polls. A king doesn't have to listen to that. A good king knows what's best for his people. And it's the job of his subjects to not be king. It's the job of the king to be king. The job of the subject is to submit. You know, imagine a scene a hundred, several hundreds, hundreds of years ago uh, in the olden days where a valiant warrior stood before his king after having just done something great in battle or about ready to be knighted. And the king would take the sword and the, the valiant warrior would hand over his sword to his king. And then that warrior would take a knee in front of his king and put his head down. And it was a symbol because he's exposing the most vulnerable part of his body. And he had just given his weapon to his king. And in other words, he's saying, I submit to you, king. If you should choose, you could take your sword to the back of my neck and end my life right now. It's this picture of submission. I gotta be honest, that kind of probably was an uncomfortable position to be standing for a warrior, to be, to be kneeling totally exposed to his king. Submission can be an uncomfortable place because we have to give up control. But this is the essence of the gospel. There's an essence of the gospel in which we must give up control because, you see, the message of the gospel says that we are broken and sinful and that we can do nothing to aid ourselves in the presence of God. We are helpless to please God. 
And so as a Christian, we must believe that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The essence, I mean, if someone would ask you, what's the gospel? The gospel is you're helpless. That's where it starts. You submit to a God who can do for you what you can't do for yourself. That's Jesus, God in the form of a human being, sacrificing himself to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so a Christian, when we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, there is this submission, and that's the call of discipleship. At Waukee Community Church, we talk about all the time how we're trying to make disciples, followers of Jesus. And, and that's the essence of what it means to be a disciple. It's submission. We must call him master, or the Jewish term was rabbi. Jesus should be our rabbi in the same way he was the rabbi to the 12 uh, uh, disciples. We place ourselves under his authority. We call Jesus our king. We are his subjects. Now, we don't like this. We don't like to give up control. And so, as su- for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, for those of us who believe that we are sinful and we need Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, for those of us who submit ourselves as disciples, the problem is, is we don't like it. It's uncomfortable. And so we, either consciously or unconsciously, are continually trying to give, take back control. We, we say, Jesus, be my king, but only when it's convenient. Or, Jesus, be my king, except for right now. Right now, I'd like to. Or, could you be my convenient king? This is what Saul did. King Saul fought to take back control of his own life. He fought to be the one calling the shots of his own life. He fought to be the king of Israel. But in God's economy, let's be clear, there's really only one king of Israel. That's God himself. And so Saul was supposed to be a king under a king. God himself, ultimately, ultimately there's only one king. It's God himself in the person of Jesus. So, so th- this is how we get to the text today. And, and, and it just as we have been working through the uh, person of Saul in this series, No Regrets, let me just bring you back up to speed because last week we kind of took a week off from the series. And so let me just bring you back up to speed to where we've been. Remember, uh, the original idea for Israel was that God would be the king of Israel. He, he would be the king. And, and so that when they originally set up this kingdom, when they conquered the land under Joshua and set up, every tribe had an area and every tribe had a leader, but ultimately God was the king. And the people didn't like this, so they cried out. They said, God, we want to be like all the other nations. Give us our own king. And so God said, okay, if you want a king, I'll give you a king. But it's really important when God chose Saul, the way he described Saul was not with the word king initially. He used a different word in Hebrew, and that word is the word leader. Saul was supposed to be a king or a leader that submitted to the real king. Saul's job was obediently leading. Saul's job was to not be in control, but to submit to God's control. And early on, we see that Saul doesn't like being out of control very much. We see it right away. He just doesn't like it. Saul wanted to be king, and so he wrestles God for kingship. And we see that Saul develops tons of regret in his life. At the end of his life, Saul would look back, and I think Saul regretted much because Saul missed it. He thought that 
that his life would have purpose and meaning if Saul was in control of his own life, if he had to submit to no one. But that's not the way it works. Today I want you to look at King Saul with me and be willing, if you would, to see some of yourself in him. Would you be willing to take an honest self-evaluation of yourself enough to say, what parts of King Saul might I see in myself today? Would you be willing to, rest, to wrestle with this question and, and ask yourself, how do I wrestle with God for control of my own life? Would you be willing to root out some of these tendencies in your own life? Would you be willing to live a life of no regret? So let's look at how Saul fought for control. And then as we do that, we can see how we tend to fight for control. So in chapter 15, God has a job for King Saul. Saul has solidified his, the kingship of Israel. He's rallied everyone together. All the Israelites are following him. And God says, I have a job for you. Saul, I want you to go and I, I want you to punish the Amalekites. And I want you to kill all of them. Now you have to understand, we don't like these kind of things. We read this and go, whoa, what's the deal, God? I mean, really. But you have to remember who the Amalekites were. The, the Amalekites were evil personified. They were a wandering, they were wandering bandits. They had some home bases and they would just go out. They were, they were ancient terrorists is who the Amalekites were. They would randomly spread fear amongst people. They brutalized and terrorized anyone who set down roots. Like that's who the Amalekites were. They were just evil. And so the Amalekites uh, would tend to just destroy the weak, those who, who couldn't defend themselves. They were like raiding bandits. And on their way up from Egypt, hundreds of years before, when the Israelites were coming up from Egypt to the land, they had to go through the, the, the area of the Amalekites to get up to, to Israel where they were headed. And, and the Amalekites, the, the Israelites had been wandering for 40 years. They were tired. They were exhausted. And the Amalekites took advantage of this. And if you, I don't know if you remember the story in, in uh, Exodus. It's a great one. And they, they had this battle ensued. And, they, and the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. And the Israelites were trying to defend them off. And there's this great story of Moses when he held his hands up. Do you remember this story? When he held his hands up, the people won. But when his hands grew tired, the, they would lose the battle. So he had his, his uh, associates hold his arms up in the air. And the Israelites won. And it's just another picture of how God wins the battle, not the Israelites, you know. And God said, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did. And now, albeit hundreds of years later, God has punishment to inflict upon these Amalekites. These Amalekites were so vile, so full of terror, so evil, that God says, kill everything. Don't leave anything on this earth, God says. Kill the people, kill the animals, kill everything. Look at uh, chapter 15, verse 3. That's where God says. He says, now, Saul, go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. This was a very unusual command. Generally, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites had been commanded to go and to conquer a land, they got to keep the best keep the spoils. But this is how evil the Amalekites were. God wants, God doesn't want anything infecting that. He, he wants to deal with them completely. And so Saul is supposed to completely destroy everything. And of course, 
Saul is going to obey this command, but in this completely passive-aggressive manner. Saul is going to only partially obey this command. He's going to do things his way. And you know what? You and I, we do the same thing. We like to partially obey God. We just do this. We want God's blessing, but what we really want is to call the shots instead of being obedient. It's our own passive-aggressive way of sort of saying, okay, I like the whole Jesus died for my sins thing, but the rest of it I'd like to do on my own. So we fight for control. And, and as I looked at the text, I found maybe five ways, five ways that, uh, that we fight for control. And we can put ourselves and we can see a little Saul in us. And how do we do this? Well, the first way we do this is by partial obedience. It's interesting, Saul does obey. He does obey. He goes out, he, he gathers 200,000 troops, and he gets ready to attack the, the Amalekites. Now, there was this other group of people that were kind of hanging out with the Amalekites. They were called the Kenites, and they were innocent. And it's, Saul does right. He says, okay, warning, you Kenites, I don't have a, I'm not, go leave. Like, just leave right now, and it'll go better for you. And so they do. The Kenites walk away. And so now it's just the Amalekites. And he's got 200,000 troops, and he's ready to go. And he begins delivering God's judgment. But listen, listen to what he does. He, he doesn't completely obey. He partially obeys. Look at verse 7. So then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Interesting. He kept Agag alive. But God said destroy everything, but he kept the king alive. Now, keep reading. And all the people he totally destroyed with the sword, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fatted calves, the lambs, everything that was good. They were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed why would Saul keep King Agag alive? Why would the people, the soldiers, keep the best of the cattle? I mean, clearly God had, God was very clear through Samuel, kill everything. Well, think about this. In those days, it was kind of nice to have a king that you had conquered around. A lot of times they'd uh, cut off their arms and legs and or their hands and feet, or their thumbs and toes even, and, you know, sort of keep them under the table on a chain, like, hey, look, I conquered this king. Everyone, look, sort of a trophy. Because Saul wants to talk about how great he is. Right? That's why he didn't destroy Agag. It's like a, a bragging right. Now, as far as Saul and the soldiers keeping the best of the animals, I mean, this is just good stewardship, right? You know, like, let's just keep the best of the best because, you know, I don't want to, I mean, that, why, that's wasteful. We don't want to be wasteful. Let's not kill the best. Let's keep the best. Here's a statement of truth for you. Partial obedience is the same thing as disobedience. And man, do we know something about partial obedience? At least I do. I like to obey just like Saul so I can say, God, see, I did it. I just did it my way. I did what you wanted, but I just did it my own way. Partial obedience is disobedience. When it comes to paying taxes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when it comes to sharing the gospel with someone, we're like, eh, well, I shook their hand, right? You know, or I'm just, 
issuing kindness to a neighbor or, you know, like, oh, I gossiped only a little. And, you know, or like we hear the gentle voice of the Spirit telling us to do something and we sort of just go, yeah, I don't really want to do that one. And partial obedience is disobedience. So, I mean, it's just, the rubber hits the road all the time in this in our lives because we sort of pick and choose the things of God that we want to follow. I, I was laughing, a, a fellow pastor friend of mine was, was talking about a conflict he'd had with another pastor from another church nearby. And, uh, you know, he, and he tried to resolve this thing, but the guy won't even give him the time of day. And he was like, what should I do? And I said, I think you should start vicious rumors about him in his church and try to destroy his church. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm kidding, but you, you kind of wanted to. He's like, oh, it's so maddening. You won't even respond to me. Like, we just kind of pick and choose. We're like, well, I'm justified in doing this. If we have a conflict, like, I won't actually talk to the person. I mean, we love partial obedience. And then we come to God and we go, look, see, I was obedient. Partial obedience is disobedience. It's a passive-aggressive way of saying, God, I want to do it on my terms, in my way. And that's how we fight for control. There's another way we fight for control. It's not just partial obedience. It's also by seeking our own glory. So Samuel gets word of, of Saul's partial obedience, his disobedience, because God says, Samuel, uh, look, Saul did this, and I'm totally grieved by this. I'm grieved that I made Saul king. And so Samuel sets out to find Saul. And I, this is just crazy. You love this. So early in the morning, verse 12, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul because he's got bad news for Saul and he needs to deliver it. So he goes out to meet Saul, but he was told, well, Saul's not here. Saul's gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. <laughs> Saul's busy making a statue of himself. I mean, you know, like, he said, oh, I'm important. I want people to know that. I'm going to make a monument to me. So I'll kind of miss the point. Let us not forget the one who deserves glory in our lives. It's God. You and I, we love our own glory. At least I do. I want to be awesome. Let's not forget how beautiful and glorious our God is. You see, the lie of the Garden of Eden that Satan gave to Eve is the same lie he gives to us, is that we can be better than God. We can be the one to get glory, and we like to do this all the time. I want to be famous. I want to be liked. I want to be glorious. I hope that ultimately what I really want is God's glory. But honestly, there are days when I want someone to put up a statue of me. You know? I mean, they're just days, right? I just want to be awesome. And everybody to know it and tell me. I'm a words of affirmation guy. Tell me how awesome I am, right? I, I just want my own glory. Saul was the leader. He was supposed to be pointing all the glory to God. But Saul had other plans. Because Saul didn't want to submit so much. He wanted to be the top dog. He wanted his own glory. We fight for control and we seek our own glory. There's another way we fight for control. We blame others. <laughs> Partial obedience, seeking our own glory, blaming others. So when Saul, Samuel finally catches up with Saul, Saul, Saul greets Samuel with a lie. He says, the, the first thing he says is, <laughs> verse 13, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. 
And so Samuel goes, um, okay, well then what is, it this, what is this sheep I'm hearing in the background? Right? If you've carried it out, what, I'm hearing sheep. I don't get this. I don't get this. Saul's response in 15 is this. Saul answered, well, well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites and they spared the best of the sheep and, they, and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Well, we totally destroyed the rest, but the soldiers, they're the ones that did it. I mean, it just cracks me up every time I read that. Saul is trying his best not to have to admit fault. If we don't have to admit our own frailty, frailty we keep an illusion of control in our lives. Ever meet someone who can't say the words, I'm wrong? Like, we all know them, right? Some of us are them. It's just hard to, you know, I, I mean, they'll blame everybody else. They'll find everybody else at fault rather than saying the words, I'm wrong or I'm sorry. I mean, I, sometimes I'm listening to them, I'm just like, stop it. Stop talking. Just say, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Just say it. Come on, you can do it. I'm trying to keep control. And we do this with God. We say, well, God, I, I don't want to actually have to admit that I did something wrong, so I'll blame everybody else. And so they do that. The story continues. Samuel lays into Saul, but Saul keeps up the blame game. Look, look at verse 21. Verse 21, he, he just keeps it up. He says, the soldiers took the sheep. The soldiers did it. They took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Like, even, he was even saying, you know, they did it for the right reasons to sacrifice to you. He's just all about blaming and excuses. Saul cannot say the words, I did something wrong. He is going to fight for control by not having to admit it. The words I'm sorry are very powerful words. They're very powerful words. Say them to your kids. Say them to your employees. Say them to your spouse. Say them to your neighbors. Those words are powerful. Because in saying them, we say to someone, I, I'm giving you a little power in my life. But in ultimately, we're saying, God, I give you power because I acknowledge that I'm the one. I'm the one who did wrong, and you are the one who does right. Saul couldn't accept blame, so he threw it to the soldiers. We do the same thing sometimes. There's a fourth way we fight for control. We believe lies. Not only do we give partial obedience and seek our own glory and blame others, but we believe lies, and particularly we believe our own lies. So, so into his own kingship that the denial, the lies, I, I think he started to believe them. And this is where we land in verse 20. Samuel said, why, why did you not obey? Why did you do this? And Saul says, but I did obey the Lord, Saul says. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Malachites and brought back Agag, their king. I, I don't know at some point what's in Saul's mind. If he's actually convinced himself that he was fully obedient, whether he lied to himself enough, I think he's convinced himself that he can do what he wants and still do what God wants. And in doing so, he's believing his own lies. <coughs> do you think you can be a Christian and be your own king? If you think that, it's a lie. It's a lie from the devil. 
It's a lie to be in control of your own life. It's just not true. We can tell ourselves the same things over and over and over and over and just start to believe it. But when God is control, in control, we need to listen to him. There's that submission again. And it's, we need to identify the lies in our life. Now this is really hard. Identifying lies in our lives is really hard. Especially when we've told ourselves the lies long enough where we believe them. And this is why com- the Christian community is so vitally important. That we get close enough to someone to say, if I'm believing a lie, would you tell me that? That is a, whew, that's a scary place to be, to give someone that kind of power or control, to submit to God by submitting to others. It's why we need community, because sometimes we don't want to admit when we're believing our own lies. We need community. It's how God's Spirit works in us. When we're fighting control, we're not interested in that. When we're fighting for control, we're willing to just believe whatever lie we throw out there. That's what Saul did. There's a fifth way we fight for control. And that's by pursuing only blessing. We fight for control with God when we pursue only blessing. We want everything to go just right. So we say, God bless me. So we can continue to be in control but have God's blessing. I talk all the time about how we really think of God as our genie in our bottle. I mean, we just do. We're like, okay, I'm going to do my thing and my way and go my way and do whatever I want. And, uh uh-oh, I got myself in trouble. God, I need your help. If you could help me out, rub the lamp, pray, boom, God helps us out. Thanks. I really want your blessing, God. Just give me your blessing. I don't really care about you so much, God. I just want your blessing. Saul tells Samuel that, excuse me, Samuel tells Saul that God has rejected Saul as king. (laughs) Now, what becomes very obvious here is that Saul is all about his own blessing. Saul is all about being in power. Saul is all about retaining the blessing because he likes what it means to be king. What becomes very obvious, so Saul starts this lament. Look at verse 25. When finally... Arguing with Samuel is getting him nowhere. He finally says, Now I beg you, verse 25, forgive my sin. Come back with me, Samuel, so I may worship the Lord. And 27, Samuel turns to leave, and Saul is so desperate for God's blessing that he grabs hold of the hem of his robe. He's like, I'm not going to let you leave. Because I want to be in control and I want God's blessing so much. And he grabs the hem of his robe and the robe tears. And then Samuel uses an opportunity to say, this is what's going to happen to your kingdom. You see, what Saul wanted more than anything is God just to bless him and make him great. He wanted the blessing of the kingship. If you care more about the things God does for you than you do about God's glory, you're pursuing his blessing and not him a dangerous place to be. We need to delight in God and not in his blessing. God is king. We are not. We must learn from Saul to stop fighting for control. You know, so I'm, I'm in the hospital uh, laying in bed. Some of you came to see me. That was really nice. I don't really know what I said. I was on drugs, so I apologize. Uh, <laughs> Or sometimes I just stare. I, I, apparently, uh, Mark Fish, I fell asleep in the middle of the conversation with him. So who knows? Anyway, but, you know, I'm laying there, and my head is pounding so bad. I can't do anything. 
I, I don't know if I've ever experienced what it's like to be unable to be unproductive. I, I mean, I've chosen not to be productive before, <laughs> you know, but to be unable, it was a helpless feeling. There was only one person I could cry out to, you know. I mean, uh, I, I can say to the doc, fix me, but he's like, I don't know what's wrong with you yet. So we're still figuring it out. And I, I just, all I had is to submit. All that, it's the only place it could be. It's very obvious at that moment that it's not about my blessing or not about my control. or not. It's very evident to me at that moment that God is the one in control and this is about him and not about me. We fight for control. Okay, so let's, let's not be in a place where we're fighting for control. Let's willingly submit to him. How do we do that? I, there's a couple of ways from the text that I think we can do that. Um, and it, they'll seem obvious. The first one is seek out full obedience. Seek out full obedience. This verse that, that Samuel quotes, he's quoting, he's quoting scripture here. And Samuel quotes to Saul. Because Saul is saying, I've gone through the motions and I essentially did what God wanted. Samuel replies by quoting scripture. Does the Lord, verse 22, delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Okay, so like we get religious stuff, especially in our culture here in the west side of Des Moines. Everybody is churchy. I mean, most people anyway. I talk to my neighbors. Everyone go, goes to church somewhere. Everyone's churchy. And we get be nice, you know. What, and all that by me mean is avoid conflict and don't stir up trouble, right? So we get this religious-y stuff. We could say, I've gone through the motions. You know, I went to church this many times. I, I you know, attended life group occasionally. I, whatever, you know, we can go through the motions. I, I read my Bible twice last year, and I did, check, I did it all. But God is looking at more than just motions. He's looking about fullness. So, like, uh, when it comes to Loving God, you're going to be immersed in his word, right? Not just as a checklist, but because you love it. When it comes to, to, to things like this, we, we value the community of believers, so we want to be with the community of believers. I mean, it's more, it's, 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 it's obedience. It's not just the motions. It, and I think that's what Samuel is trying to tell Saul. Saul, you're not getting it. You're just trying to check things off and move on. This is about getting your heart fully engaged in obedience. So it, every day I want to encourage you, you know, get up in the morning and pray, God, make today about you. You know, don't ignore the whisperings of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was just talking to someone this week who was wrestling through kind of a difficult thing and saying, I think God's prompted me to do this. And my advice is always don't ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit. Walk down that road and see where that pans out a little bit. Uh, I'll never forget... Uh, <laughs> I think my wife was going to kill me, but I was driving, driving back from a, a meeting I had in northern Iowa, and I saw these two hitchhikers, and God said, stop. <laughs> and, you know, at 65, you've got to make a decision real quick. And so, stopped, and they ran up to the car, and, and I'm like, okay, God, I'm just being obedient. I don't know where this is going. My wife's going to kill me, but there we are. So they hop in the car, uh, you know, 
they stunk to high heaven. Like, I got to roll down the window. It's 30 degrees outside. And why is this guy running the window down? Yeah. So I do it. I drive them back, drop them off at a truck stop that they want to go. I don't know why I did that. No idea. We didn't have this great gospel conversation where, I mean, we tried, but you know, they didn't, weren't on their knees in my van repenting, right? Like, I don't know why. I did it, God, because I want to be fully obedient. Like, sometimes we, we just get this sense and we like, God's leading me to do something. And then we go, no, that's just my head saying dumb stuff to me. Well, it might be. I don't know. But walk down that road a little bit. See where that pans out, you know? Listen. I mean, sometimes we can say crazy things, and what, but at least explore it. Don't just... We can be fully obedient. I mean, you might come down and you might pursue that a little bit and go, no, okay, I was thinking that was something else and that's clearly not, God. okay. But just be willing. Be inconvenienced. <laughs> if God fits into your schedule nicely, you're probably only partially obedient. God tends to do things that aren't convenient. And so if you're just, look, God fits so nicely into, that's partial obedience. He's going to inconvenience you. He's going to ask you to do something that's not convenient. God just does those things. Full obedience says we, I'm willing. Okay, I'll explore that. Seek out full obedience. The second thing, and I think important here, is we submit to God's control by seeking true repentance. We seek true repentance. Look at um, 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 30. Saul replied, he's still holding, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. Isn't that interesting? So I want to be honored. I mean, it's just not true repentance. He's seeking blessing more than he is God himself. Uh, compare that with King David, the next king who's called a king after, a man after God's own heart. You know, now Saul, it's always kind of strange to me. Saul, um, he kind of messed up this, the sacrifice that Aaron talked about two weeks ago. He, uh, here he really doesn't, obey God fully, just kind of, and so God rips the kingdom of, from him. David, on the other hand, commits murder, adultery, like, I mean, the list is just huge, heinous sins, and God's like, yeah, this is a man after my own heart. Like, I don't get it, but I do. Look, right here. David understood true repentance. In Psalm 51, where he's repenting for what the whole Bathsheba mess, he says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. I mean, it's just beautiful. Saul is like, okay, God, you just, I just want to be honored. I'll say whatever I need to say right now to fix this. David recognizes that all sin is ultimately sin against God. True repentance understands this. We submit when, when not only do we walk towards full obedience, when we're willing to do, obey God, Full repentance, full submission comes when we're willing to repent, true repentance. As we wrap up today, uh, I, I guess this message is just a challenging message. It's challenging to me as I'm preaching it, is that I'm challenging you to remember and press towards full submission. 
Because God is a covenant God. There's a, there's a verse here. There's two things that at first make me scratch my head. Okay, Verse 11, as a wrap-up, I just want to point this out because I think it's really important. 1511, God says to Samuel, I'm grieved that I've made Saul king. Then flip forward in 29, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. The word grieved and changed are the same Hebrew word. It's not apparent in the text here, but same word. So on the one hand, God says, I'm grieved that I, that I made Saul king. On the other hand, it says, but I'm not a God who lies or is grieved. <laughs> you know, I've changed my mind about Saul, but I'm not a God who changes his mind. Okay, I'm confused. Well, here's what, here's what, what I, I think that we find the answer to this dilemma in. Is God is comparing himself with Saul. You see, God is not a flip-flopper. God is not just one who some lightly just poof, throws it up and changes. God is a covenant God, and God has agreed to a covenant with the king of Israel. And Saul has broken this covenant. And God is not a covenant breaker. He does not break covenants. It's, it's, it's this comparison. And oh, this brings me great joy. Because here's the thing. When we're like, you know, God, I want to admit that giving up control to you is hard. And, but you're the kind of God to whom I would want to submit. A God who, as we sang earlier, loves us ferociously. I love that picture in the song, How He Loves, that he's the hurricane of love. And we're this tree bending beneath the weight of God's covenant love. That's how much he loves us. That's the kind of God he is. And if this God is for us, who can be against us? And that's why I'm calling you and me to radical submission. Because we do what God asks. Because every day is devoted to him. And because he is the kind of God who doesn't just flippantly go back on his word, but he's radically committed to his word. And so we can follow him and submit to him because of this. And one of the beautiful ways we do that is through prayer. Uh, being on our knees in prayer, I don't know if you do that often. I don't know if, I mean, sometimes I pray in convenience, like when I'm driving and, you know, I'm just, something comes to my mind, I pray then. And, and that's okay, pray like that. That's good. But there's something to the act of getting down on our knees, you know? And just the physical act of kneeling before a God. It, it says, God, I submit to you. Of, of bowing our head forward like a knight before a king and, and saying, God, I expose all my, my defenses. I am yours. Do with me as you please. Like there's something beautiful to a physical act of submission because it's an understanding that we are not the king of our lives. Jesus is. Saul was self-reliant. He wanted control. David was God-reliant. He gave God control. And ultimately, all this points to Jesus because he is our king. To him, we submit. To him, we bow a knee. To him, we say, you do what you want with my life. Are you like Saul? Of course you are. I am too. 
But the good news is we have a great and kind and compassionate God who is slow to anger, and he wants us to discover that real life comes through submission. Let's pray as we close. Oh God, we come to you today. We hold out our hands. We raise the white flag. We bow our knee. We come before you and offer ourselves completely and we confess that we love to take back control, but God, take it from us. That is the good life. The life where you are king and not us. God, open up avenues for obedience this week. Give us the strength to seek your glory, not our own. Jesus, be king. Be the king that you are. We want to leave this life with no regrets. Help us to be fully obedient and in submission to you. We pray this all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.